0: Not sure if you have noticed this or not, but we live in an era of uh, confusion and maybe even insanity when it comes to questions of human identity. Think about the long list of questions that flow from this conversation. Questions like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be male or to be female? How does the reality that God created us change how we answer those questions? Other questions, like are we merely biological beings or are we also spiritual beings? Does human life have moral and transcendent value? And if so, where does that value come from and when does it begin? These are questions that are very much at the center of our cultural conversations today. As we continue in our sermon series in Genesis, today we're looking specifically at what the creation account has to say about human beings. Not surprisingly, Scripture gives us a really helpful lens through which we can view ourselves, our society, and humanity in general. Today, we're, we're sort of laying the foundation as we talk about God's creation of human beings. And, and next week, we will sort of turn the coin over and look at what humanity has done to itself, how it rebels against God and has chosen its own way. So Genesis 1, uh, starting in verse 26, uh, this is God's word to us. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And then jumping down to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pushon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through this into the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, And to care for it and the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it you will certainly die the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone I will make a helper suitable for him now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky God, may you bless the hearing and the preaching of your word today. Open our our minds and our hearts to hear and to receive and and give us faith to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far in our opening weeks in this series in Genesis, we've looked at the first couple of chapters of Genesis from a couple of different perspectives. And today we're going to look specifically at what these passages teach us about humanity. And as we do, I want to draw your attention to five things specifically that we learn about humanity. The first one is this, that human beings were created in the image of God. Human beings were created in the image of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. It says then God said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and then jump down to verse 27 so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them if you remember earlier in chapter 1 the text emphasizes by repetition a, a certain phrase and that phrase was, according to their kinds. For example, in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1, we see this, this phrase, or something like it, repeated three times. That God made these creatures according to their kinds. But when it comes to the creation of humanity, God approaches this differently. He doesn't create them like he did the animals or the plants. He creates them according to his kind, in his own image. And we have similar emphatic repetition in verses 26 and 27, with the repetition, again, three times of human beings being created in the image of God. You'll often hear, if you do any reading on, on this topic, you'll hear this referred to by the Latin phrase quite often, imago Dei, the image of of god this sets human beings apart from all other creatures our existence our essence is is shaped in the image and likeness of our creator we'll talk next week more about the destruction that would come about the fracturing of humanity and our relationship with god and sort of the destruction of that image of god within humanity. But, but for today, as we think about what it means that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, I will sort of summarize it with two brief statements and then expand some more as we go today. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Just two brief statements. We are eternal spiritual beings. And second, we have intrinsic moral value. So think about those two things. We are eternal spiritual beings, and second, we have intrinsic moral value. Every human being that you encounter is an eternal being who has intrinsic moral value. As Psalm 139 declares, we are fearfully, wonderfully made, knit together by our Creator, this foundational truth is central to what it means to be Christian. This instantly confronts, and I would say rebukes, any of the sinful human categorization of others that we tend to gravitate toward. There is no room for, just as one example, there's no room within the Christian faith for racism, because every person that I encounter, every person that you encounter, is an eternal being made in the image of god with intrinsic moral value there's no room for any sense of superiority over any other group of people for any other reason because every human person bears the image of god when you devalue another person you insult the creator as we think about God's creation of man it's also important to to recognize what God used in his creation. This imagery here is so valuable for us. In chapter 2 verse 7, look at chapter 2 verse 7. We read, "Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became A living being. This is probably a a whole sermon unto itself, but let me give you just a taste of the richness of what we find here. God didn't create mankind from, for example, gold or diamonds, but from dust. The ordinary, the everyday. If you were anywhere around this church building about 10 days ago on those windy days, you know something about dust. I had to chase, our garbage can was down the street. I had to drag it back. And by the time I got back, I could barely open my eyes. My mouth was full of of dust. I I had to go in in the nursery bathroom and get a wet wipe because my face was brown from dust. This is such important imagery that we find in Genesis. That stuff that was blowing around, that seemingly endless supply, simple, ordinary, everyday Dust, that is what I was fashioned out of. And here's what this means. True meaning, true significance never comes from me alone. I can't create or fashion for myself true meaning, true significance. What made man valuable and significant is that which came from God, not from man the breath of life that God breathed into us, the one in whose image we are fashioned. One of the most powerful reminders of this is when we have a committal service, a graveside service. When there's a casket present, I I take dirt or I take sand and I I place it in in the shape of a cross on the casket. And and nine out of ten times in North Dakota, when you do that, before you're even done, the wind is blowing it off of the casket. Almost every cross that I make on a casket doesn't look like a cross. There's significance there. God takes the dust of the ground, some dirt, and he fashions it and he breathes life into it. Our life, our existence, our value, our being all come from God. We are made in his image. What else do we learn about our humanity in these verses second human beings were created as two distinct sexes look at verse 27 chapter 1 so god created mankind in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them this one verse brings great clarity into some difficulty and confusion that exists regarding human identity. Allow me to share two areas of clarity. The first area of clarity that that this idea brings is that it makes clear that role distinctions, so differences in the roles between men and women, that we find, especially later on in the scriptures, are not matters of value or worth, but of order. Role distinctions between men and women are not matters of, of value, but of order. Humanity, males, females, together bear the image of God. What, what does that mean? As God's image bearers, men and women are of equal value. They're not the same. We get this distinction here between men and women. They're not the same, but they are of equal value even when society doesn't reinforce that either direction even when christians haven't modeled that equal value women and men are of equal value but are not the same there's great clarity here for our world we see many distinctions between men and women in both the old and new testaments in fact we will see some of those even in the next chapter in chapter 3 of genesis we'll start to see these distinctions between men and women but none of them are a matter of value or worth they're merely a matter of function or role i think the second area in which this brings clarity by establishing two biological sexes is that it teaches it models it shows that those two sexes are each critical for human flourishing You'll notice that I didn't use the word gender here, and that was uh, intentional. Gender is a hotly debated word, and, and I have little interest in jumping into that from the pulpit today. Scripture doesn't use the word gender, and so I don't feel the need to wrestle through that culture battle this morning. I just want to say clearly what Scripture says, that there are two distinct categories or classifications of human beings. Male and female. Now we want to be careful that we we leave all of our cultural baggage out of the conversation. You inherited from your family of origin, from the cultural soup in which you're swimming, from those forces that have discipled you over the years, you've inherited certain ideas of what it means to be male and what it means to be female. And, And some of those things you've just sort of consciously embraced. Some of them you've just passively accepted, and some you have intentionally rejected. Exactly what it means to be male and what it means to be female is a much larger topic than what Genesis is dealing with today. It's an important topic, but it's larger than Genesis. Here we are simply pointing out that Scripture and science both agree that human beings exist as two distinct biological sexes that God has intended it that way so let's review human beings were created in the image of God human beings were created as two distinct sexes third human beings were created to rule and care for creation we'll start in verse 28 of chapter 1 it says God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And then we jump forward to chapter 2, verse 15, we find this statement, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We might be tempted to think of work, to think of responsibility as a product of the fall, as a consequence of sin. But from the creation of humanity, God has given us work to do and a place to to do it. This is what is often referred to as vocation. You see there's a there's a misunderstanding, maybe a modern misunderstanding that says that you are most yourself, that you are the the greatest you, that the the true you is realized when you cast off all of the expectations and all of the cultural roles that have been assigned to you. And you begin to define your own life and your own reality in your own way. It's maybe summarized by that sort of distinctly American idea of go find yourself. And of course, this isn't a new thing. Lest we become cynical of the the present and forgetful of the past, there were about a half million people in 1969 who gathered in New York and listened to a guru open Woodstock with an encouragement to cast off all of the cultural expectations and find peace within themselves and in the sound waves of the music. Those people are now in their 70s today. God has given us vocation. He's given us a calling, responsibility to work, not to self-actualize, not to set out in search of ourselves. We don't find our identity out there somewhere. And we certainly don't find our identity deep inside of ourselves. We we find our identity in who God has made us to be and in living out the callings, the vocation that he has given to us. There's actually tremendous freedom in that. In knowing that to be your greatest self, you don't have to set out on some self-discovery journey. But it's simple, ordinary, everyday obedience to the Lord. But in a more general sense, God has given some specific responsibilities to humanity in general. He has given all other created things to us for our use and for our stewardship. There is in our text an an expectation of both use and care for the rest of creation. We, We aren't, for example pantheists who might believe that a tree is God or a river is God. We don't worship trees and rocks and buffalo, and yet we don't view created things as as something to be used merely for our consumption, but instead as things to be used and stewarded. You know, I'm someone who loves the outdoors, and I often find myself, and I've had this conversation with some of you, so I know some of you are, are with me on this, I often find myself politically homeless when it comes to conversations about conservation. I don't identify with the radical environmentalist movement that functionally worships the earth, treats any human use as evil, and I also don't identify with a totally free market approach to conservation because I know too much about human nature human greed, because I'm a student of history who's seen what the free market has done to the environment in the past. I grew up 50 miles from a gold mine that used cyanide leaching and ruined a watershed and then went bankrupt and left the state to clean up the mess. Verse 15 uses two words regarding God's call upon Adam in the garden, to work it and to take care of it. Take care of it is maybe better translated even as guard it. And so we have been entrusted with these things from the Lord. We were created to find our identity in vocation, in working, and in caring for that which has been given to us. Fourth, human beings were created to live in obedience to God. Verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We'll talk more about this next week, but I wanted to introduce the idea here, because we see from before sin would enter the world, think about this, before sin entered the world, God has established a structure, a pattern for human flourishing. Human beings are created to live in obedience to God. The original obedience was pretty simple, right? Eat anything, but don't eat this. Pretty simple. This obedience is is the way that God has set up his relationship with his creation. He is the creator, and he gets to make the rules, and it's our job to obey. Again, we'll talk more on that uh, next week. Now let's look at the final thing that we learn about humanity. And that's that human beings were created for relationship. I think there are two ways that we see this in our text for today. One is maybe implicit, it's implied, and one is much more explicit. So let's look first at chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Notice the, the pronouns we find there. God uses plural pronouns to refer to himself. Of course, there are many theories. If you Google this, you'll come across many theories of why God does this. But I think the most convincing is that God is in this creation account speaking of himself referring to himself as the triune god father son and holy spirit the triune god who created all that exists and when it comes to the the pinnacle of his creation he speaks in a way that makes it clear that relationship is at the core of who we are as human beings we are made in the image of one God who exists in three distinct persons. Relationship is central to our human existence because we were created in the image of our relational God. And we see this even more clearly in chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18 says, The Lord said, or God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Remember, this is before sin has entered the world. Here we get a glimpse into the fact that we can't view Genesis 1 through 2 as as purely a linear narrative. This not good that we see in chapter 2, verse 18 is still part of day 6 of creation. It's really important to understand here. This is part of God's creative work of making humanity male and female. Fast forward to to chapter 2, verse 18, and, and it's speaking of this reality of human creation. It's fleshing out, helping us understand God's creative work of humanity. And part of that is that man was not intended to be alone. We do not read this as an afterthought, as if God was somehow caught off guard by the fact that Adam needed someone to keep him company. Remember, things are still very good. God created humanity with the need for relationships. Now we want to be careful that we don't use one passage to create an entire doctrine that ignores the rest of what Scripture says. For example, what we know is that God isn't saying that to be complete, you need a spouse. It's not what God is saying. That would be contrary to what Scripture teaches elsewhere, where singleness is presented as a gift rather than a burden. So we don't want to say what Scripture isn't saying. What Scripture is saying in these verses is that we are made to be in relationship. That we are relational beings in the image of our relational God. So let's review what we've talked about today. Human beings were created in the image of God. Human beings were created as two distinct sexes. Human beings were created to rule and care for creation. Human beings were created to live in obedience to God. And human beings were created for relationship. Think about that list. And of course, we should all feel the burden when we hear these words, shouldn't we? If you hear those words, five statements and you just nod your head in agreement and and go on about your day you're you're probably not in touch with reality because there is such a disparity between the way that we were created to be and the way that things actually are everything has been broken each one of these five points have been in some way marred or demolished Humanity is a mess, not only out there in the world, not only other people, but with with us as well. We struggle to know who we are. We wrestle with contentment. We seek to build and establish and prop up our identity in, in the ways of this world. We don't live in obedience to God. Even the best and cleanest of you here this morning... Live in perpetual disobedience to God. How do I know? Well, first, because some of you have confessed your sin to me. Second, because I've seen some of my own personal heroes in the faith fall into disobedience, run away from God. And third, because I see my own heart. I see the the sin that I struggle with, the the pride and the doubt and the the lack of trust. So many areas that I wrestle with personally, and I know that you're a lot like me. I think you get the point. This is not, the state of humanity currently is not what God created. It's not what he intended. Everything has gone off the rails so far off the rails, in fact, that that you wouldn't even choose to get back on the rails, even if you could. Our our sin has blinded us and broken us and corrupted us and enslaved us uh, to the point that, left to ourselves, we wouldn't even try to run back to the Lord. We would just keep digging the hole that we are in, even deeper. We needed someone to intervene from the outside. And so it's good, it's good news today that Genesis 2 isn't the end of the story. If this was the end of the story, we'd be left in despair. Like, here's the picture of what what we should look like. And all we know is that we don't live up to that. And we can't. Of course, God had a plan to fix our destruction of his creation from the beginning would send his son into the mess to live a perfect life in our place to redeem us from our sin to die on our behalf and i love how paul in colossians chapter 3 deals with this listen to what paul writes starting in verse 5 colossians chapter 3 verse 5 he says put to death therefore Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that part of you that is corrupted by the fall. Then he lists a number of things that are part of that earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. He says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. This list gets pretty close to home. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have, and listen to this, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge, and here's the key phrase, in the image of its creator. He calls out our sin. All of us are included in that list that he just gave. If you don't struggle with sexual immorality, you probably struggle with slander. If you don't struggle with anger, you're probably greedy. If your response is that you have all those things under control, then you're a liar. Paul shines a spotlight on all of us directly to our sin. And all these things that are a product of the mess that humanity has made of God's creation. And then he throws in this line. He says, you have taken off your old self, its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its Creator. So Paul draws on all of this language from Genesis 1 and 2. And he says, Because of what Christ has done, by faith, you are being renewed back into the image that God created you in in the first place. You have been given, Paul says, a new self. It's being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Notice how this contains. Both what we might call justification or being saved, and also sanctification. We have, he says we have put on the new self. That's justification language. That's the language of the, the loving father placing the robe on his repentant prodigal son. That's the language that Paul uses when he says that all of you who have been baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. But there's also that sanctification language, that ongoing work that God is doing within us, that daily work of the Holy Spirit renewing us in the image of our Creator. When we read these verses in Genesis 1 and 2 about humanity, our response should never be to weaponize God's word for a culture battle. These words are not, used, especially the words about human sexuality and, and two distinct sexes, these words are not to be weaponized. Our response when we hear these words should always be humility and repentance. Because it's not just a pagan world out there that has lost touch with the goodness of God's creation of human beings. It's all of us. It's you. It's me. And thanks be to God, he has taken it upon himself to fix our mess, to rescue us from ourselves. We'll get the first clear glimpse of this next week in our scripture text that he doesn't only god doesn't only save he doesn't just save us and give us the promise of eternity but that he begins that work now of renewing us back into that image in which he created us in the first place his own image the image of god let's pray God, we worship you today because you are the the creator of heaven and earth. But not only heaven and earth, you have created mankind, you have created us individually. We we can't understand what, what what it means that we have been made in your image. But we know we don't live up to it. We know that we fall short of your plan and your design or as scripture says of your glory and so god we repent we confess to you our our sin and we're grateful for that new self that you promise to give us for this new nature that's being renewed in your image lord continue that good work in us We thank you that our salvation, that our hope, that our eternal life is not dependent on our ability to clean up and get better, but that it's only ever received by faith. So, Lord, give us faith to believe. As we reflect on your wonderful creation of humanity, may we always respond in humility and repentance. And make us ever mindful that everyone that we encounter today bears your image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.